John chapter 17. Um, I really came to um, enjoy uh, the game of basketball when I was in the fourth grade. And one of the first games that I ever remember watching, uh, I'm sure I watched games before this, but it's just the one that's just I remember was uh, between the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1991 NBA Finals. And why I remember that in the first game I remember is because I just happened to be watching live when uh, Michael Jordan pulled off what is considered one of his top 10 greatest moves in the history of his game. He drove in the lane, he jumped, sees a defender, has the ball in his right hand in the air, sees the defender, switches to his left hand in the air without coming down, and lays it in with the left side on the left side of the goal going around the defender. And I'll never forget that play. Um, I'll never forget the announcer going, what a spectacular move. I'll never forget that. And it is still to this day considered one of his greatest plays that he ever did. So I, I remember really kind of getting into basketball uh, at that time. And over the years, I've watched a lot of professional sports contests, and I've seen a lot of great teams, not just in professional, but in college and even in high school. But by far, the greatest team I've ever watched play any sport uh, came in 1992 when the United States of America put together what's known as the Dream Team. How many of you remember the Dream Team from 1992? Yeah, see, that was a big deal because for about 20 years, the United States had been being, um, they, they were being humiliated in a game that they created and perfected by teams that were from places like Spain, Cuba, Yugoslavia, different places like that. And so in 1992, the United States decided to do away with a rule that they had in place. The other countries did not have this rule, but the United States had put in place for basketball the rule that if you had ever taken money for basketball, you couldn't play in the Olympics. And no other country had that rule, and therefore the other countries were using professional athletes, and we weren't, and we were getting humiliated at a game that we created and wanted and pushed to get in the Olympics. And so in 1992, that all changed. The United States says, we're going to do away with that rule, and we're going to put together a team of our best players. And what become of that is known as the original dream team from the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. I think I watched every game of that Olympics and that basketball team. As a matter of fact, I didn't just watch every game then. I've watched every special that's come out on that team since then. I've just always been intrigued with that team because they were so diverse and they had so many big personalities, yet they were completely dominant as a team. They found a way to work together and become an actual team. And in my opinion, the original Dream Team is the greatest sports team that's ever played. I mean, let me give you a few examples of how good they were. They averaged 117 points to an opponent's uh, 73. Their average margin of victory was 44 points. They led in, in 320 total minutes of games, they led for 307 of those minutes. Their largest deficit was four, four points when Spain 
got out to a 4 nothing run at the beginning of a game. That was their largest deficit in a game. Um, their coach called exactly zero timeouts in eight Olympic basketball games. Not one timeout. He didn't need a timeout. They toyed with their opponents. So much so that their closest game was the gold medal game, a game that they won 117 to 85. They were dominant. They were, to me, the greatest team, sports team, that's ever been put together. Now, what caused them to be so great? Now, some would say they were great because of their individual talent. And sure, they were individually talented. As a matter of fact, every member of that basketball team is in the Naismith Hall of Fame, Basketball Hall of Fame. Some could say it was great coaching. And they did have great coaches. Every one of their coaches, again, are in the Hall of Fame. Some might say any number of things, but, but really, truthfully, they were great because they were exactly what they're name was a team they were great because they were a team they were unified as a team to have all the personalities they had and all the competitiveness in each of them and all the status that each of those players brought to the team they found a way to work together as a cohesive unit into one specific purpose and that was to win the gold medal and bring it back to the United States and they accomplished that goal by becoming unified as a team they played together that was essential. There, there's been great players and there's been good teams that just couldn't reach their potential because they just weren't a team. Now, what in the world does that have to do with anything we're talking about today or have to do with us and the church? Well, here's the thing. I believe the church is a team. And, and I believe that for the church to be successful at accomplishing the task that the Lord is commissioned to, I believe we must work together as a team. And so this morning, with that in mind, we, we're going to start a series today called God's Dream Team, which is about the church. Because the, as good and as great as the Dream Team of 1992 Olympics were, I believe the church is the greatest Dream Team that's ever been put together because it is the Dream Team of God. Matter of fact, it's the Dream I believe that Jesus had for his church. And so this morning, as we kind of begin this series looking at the church as the, the God's dream team, we're going to look at some different characteristics from Scripture uh, on some things that are going to be essential if we're going to be the team that God's called us to be, the team that God dreams for us to be, uh, not a team that wins basketball games, but a team that wins converts to the Lord. And so we're going to look at these principles, and we're going to start with the first essential element to being a, a, an, a, an ultimate team or a dream team, and that is the element of unity. We're going to talk about being unified this morning. And that was, and make no mistake, that was and that is the desire of Christ for his church. So let's look at it found in John chapter 17. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. So John chapter 17 is the very end of what's known as the farewell discourse. And what's happened is, is Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's in the upper room, and he's giving his disciples the kind of his last will, if, if you want, or his last words. 
And right before he, he, he ends this time and goes out into the garden where he's betrayed and arrested and, and goes on to be crucified for our sins, right before that, the last thing he does is recorded in John 17, and it's where he prays for his church. And we're going to look at his prayer a little bit this morning. Look down starting in verse 11, and we're going to read down through verse 22. Jesus said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, uh, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak to the world, that they... Uh, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes... I sanctify myself, so may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, and now as we begin to examine it this morning, I pray that I would decrease and your spirit living in me would increase, and the words today that are shared would be yours and not mine. Father, that you would find the place they have, the desire in our hearts, that we would respond how you lead us to respond. You know each of us this morning, you know our point of need, and I pray, Lord, that you would meet us at that point of need through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in John chapter 17, Jesus begins to pray for his church. And the recurring theme in John 17 in his prayer for the church is that the church, his followers, would be one. That they would be unified. That was his prayer for the church. Therefore, that was his desire for the church. And so we're going to look about in four things about this unity or this oneness that Jesus desires for the church. And why it's essential if we're going to be God's dream team that he's called us to be. The first thing I want you to see this morning is it's Jesus' dream. Jesus' desire is for his church to be unified. Now, you can find that in verse 11, verse 21, and verse 22 all speak of that emphasis. Now, here's the thing. Men who face imminent death usually do not waste time or breath, for they have very little of any left. Normally, as someone who is about to face death are, are going to give their final words, and final words are forever words. Many times that is what people become known by. What were their final words? What was the last thing uh, that they said? And, and people want to know those, those final, those enduring forever words. And if you really want to know what Jesus' desires was for his church, 
what it ought to be and how it should look, then one might want to consider Jesus' final words before his crucifixion found in John chapter 17. If you really want to know what Jesus' desire for the church is, just read his words right before he's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to leave. So he prays for his church, and recurringly he prays that they would be unified, that they'd be one. Why do you think he prayed that? I'll tell you why. Because unity is not natural. Unity is not easy. Any of you who've been married know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I, I use this when I do premarital counseling, but when two people are going to get married and I talk to them before they get married, I make sure they understand that, that they have two di- they're two different people with two different ideals, two different ways of viewing things. It, it, as much as they might have in common, they are still two separate individual people. And when you get married, you're going to come and bring those two people together under one roof, one household. And let me tell you, if you can't work to the, your issues before you get married, coming into one household doesn't make it easier. It makes it harder because now you're around them all the time. Whereas before you were married, if you got into an argument or you had a disagreement, you could leave. When you're married, you can't do that. Well, let me rephrase that. You can, but you shouldn't. When, when unity is not common. Why? Because we are self-centered individuals who have our best interests at heart. That's what we normally tend to, to want and desire. And it's no different in the church. And so Jesus said, listen, when I leave... Chuck was right this morning. Jesus is the bond that holds us together. When Jesus was on this earth, it was a lot easier because he was right here, and he could point them out and say, you ought not be that way, follow me, do this. And and people were focused on Jesus because he was right there. But now that Jesus is gone, it's a lot easier for us to start focusing again on self. As a matter of fact, it was such an issue that Paul talks about it in a couple places, and we're going to read some verses from Paul in just a little while. But but Jesus' desire in his final prayer was that his church would be unified. Now listen, unity is not just a buzzword in the church. It's not just a talking point for the pastor. Unity is literally, I believe, the dream of Christ. It is what he desires so much so that he prayed for it. And therefore, the idea of unity ought to raise our concern for it. But the idea that he prayed for it ought to raise our concern for unity. If, if it is what Christ wants and what he prayed that would happen, maybe we ought to be unified. Maybe we ought to be unified. So what is unity? When I say unity, what, what is unity? Now, now listen, unity is not uniformity. We're not the same. We are all different. We do have different talents. We have different personalities. We have different ideals. We have different preferences. We we have different thoughts on things. That's not, unity is not laying all those things down. Unity is working together for one common effect or one good. So unity by definition means, let me read the definition to you, it's a of harmony. It's the quality or state of being made one, the resulting singleness of effort and effect and consistency of style and character. And the best way that I can really describe biblical unity to you is in describing a symphony. 
Have you, anybody ever been and heard a symphony played? You go and, and you go to the symphony and there's all these different people and they're playing all these different instruments and they all play different things. The, some are playing, some are resting. Some are playing at the same time, others are playing, but they're not playing the same thing. But when it's all brought together into one sound, it makes a beautiful harmony. That's what unity is. It's where God uses our individual talents, our individual gifts, our individual personalities, all to work together for one effect or one goal. What is that goal? What is the goal? To advance the gospel. What did Jesus commission the church to do? Matthew 28. Therefore go into all nations, baptizing them in the name, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and behold, I'm with you, even to the ends of the earth. What, what did Jesus commission us to do? To advance the gospel. And we do it all in various ways, and, and through various talents, and various different gifts, but it all works together in harmony. See, unity is not laying aside our, our complete differences. Unity is working in our differences going the same direction. Now, why is unity important? Because if we don't have it, we can't go anywhere. So if I brought five people, and I was going to try to do this and I didn't have time, but if I brought five people up here and I gave them a, 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 a piece of rope that was connected at the middle, and they formed a circle, and each of them had it, and I said, pull, and they all begin to pull, which direction are they going to go? Probably nowhere unless one person is significantly stronger than the others, and even then they'll go very little, right? But what if I was to change that and say, now you all have the rope, but I all want you going that way. How easily would they go that way? Easily. Why? Because now they're all pulling in the same direction. That's what unity is. If we don't have it, then we don't go anywhere because we pull in opposite directions and we literally begin pulling against one another instead of working together going in the same direction. And so unity is vital. It's essential for not just sports teams to be uh, successful. It is essential for the church. Because if we're not unified, we're not going anywhere. It doesn't mean we always have to agree. It doesn't mean that we always have to, to, to do this or that or the other. What it does mean is we all agree on one specific thing. And that is that our job is to advance the gospel. And we're going to go in that direction. So unity is essential. It's the dream of Jesus. Number two, the second thing I want you to see about biblical unity is there is a barrier to it. There is something that keeps unity from happening because just as God uses unity to draw and attract the church together in order for us to accomplish our task of advancing the gospel, I want you to know the enemy uses disunity and division to drive people away from God, away from the church, and away from the mission. I want you to know that Satan is active and his desire is to divide. He, he, he is... What's the oldest combat tactic in history? Divide and conquer. And Satan is very, very, very good at it. 
listen, if you don't see the climate of what's happening in our country today as a work of Satan, then you're blind. Because all that's going on in our culture today, all of it, is divide. Divide, 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 divide. And where is that coming into? If it's in our culture, it easily comes where? In the church. And if he can divide the church, then there's no unity. Then guess what happens? We go nowhere. Don't be mistaken. Satan cares when his kingdom is affected. Now, he's been rendered powerless to the gospel. But if we're not unified and we're being divisive, then we're not taking the gospel anywhere. As a matter of fact, that's why Jesus said that we would be known, Chuck quoted I think a little bit this morning, that we'll be known by our love for one another. Listen, when we are disunified and, and we're not loving one another and all that goes with that, why in the world would the, church, the world want to listen to anything we have to say? We become just like them, and they're sitting there going, why, why do I need your God? You guys are more divisive than anybody. You're more unloving than anybody. You're more unaccepting, and they go through this whole realm. Listen, that's all Satan. He is dividing and divisive in order to keep us away from God, from the church, and from doing our mission. I want you to know disunity has caused more Christians to abandon their commitment to Christ and his church than any other factor. Almost everyone that I know that's an adult that's walked away from the church, not all, but a lot, a big percentage of the adults that I know when I was a kid that, that were active in the church who were no longer active today, and I'm talking about a specific church, the church I grew up in. Most of those adults who no longer are active at all that were active when I was a kid, they stopped being active because the church split. They divided. And they still... Most have not got back on track with that church and the mission that that church is supposed to be about. Satan uses it to separate us, and I want you to know disunity has caused more Christians to abandon their commitments to Christ and to his church than any other factor. Now, I mentioned Paul earlier, but, but listen to this. I believe Paul sensed this was going to be a major danger threatening the church himself. Listen to a couple verses of Scripture. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Corinth. Now I plead with you. Now don't ignore words. That word plead means beg. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He begged the church in Corinth by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they not be divided. Now listen to what he said to the church in Philippia, Philippi, in Philippians, excuse me, chapter 2. Verse 3 and 4, he says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Disunity is a danger to every healthy church, and it is the main barrier that keeps the church from being God's dream team. What will keep us, more than anything, from accomplishing our task? Being divided. 
Because when we're divided, we're not going anywhere when it comes to the gospel. And so we need to be unified. Now, what's the cause? What causes all this disunity? Now, I mentioned it's, a, it's an act or it's an activity or it, it comes from Satan, and that's very true. Uh, but in the verses that I just read in 1 Corinthians 1 and in Philippians chapter 2, I believe Paul kind of sums up the three main causes of disunity in the church. And let me give them to you real quick. The first one would be selfish ambition. Selfish ambition causes disunity in the church. Selfish ambition refers simply to the individuals who are more interested in advancing themselves than advancing the work of the kingdom. These are those who are more concerned about themselves than they are about the whole. They're, these are those who are always, they have to be in control. They, they have to get their way or they won't serve. Because it's not about the gospel. It's not about advancing the kingdom. It's not about the church. It's not about Jesus. It's all about them and their ambition. Now, I want you to know, I have met and I've, I have teetered at times in my ministry on being selfish in ambition. I've made no qualms, but when I look back, I will tell you right now, the reason why I left First Baptist Lone Grove to go to First Baptist Ada was selfish ambition. I wanted a big church tied to my name. I was tired of all my friends who I grew up in the ministry with advancing and advancing, and here I was in this little church, and then first data called, and I went. It was the worst mistake of my life. I swore I'd never do it again, and, and you guys know from experience I haven't done that. I've been right here, and I love that church. And I love our people, and I love our community. But I'm telling you, I've teetered on that, and I know lots of pastors and leaders in the church that that's what they're about. It's selfish ambition. It's not about the gospel. It's not about Jesus. It's about them and about what they're going to get out of it. And Paul says that's a problem. The second cause to division in the church is not just selfish ambition, but prestige. Now, prestige is the, the desire to be wanted or or it's the the fame or the popularity that comes or the admiration that comes from people uh, to you and, and I want you to know prestige is often more alluring and tempting than wealth is money's one thing but having the reputation having the following and I want you to know as pastors I see this too uh, I used to and, and this was kind of a joke amongst pastors uh, but used to, and it was, it was kind of ongoing, you go to the convention or something, and, and someone introduce you, you get introduced, and this is not what you said, but this is kind of what it was like. And it's like, yeah, Dwayne Davis, First Baptist Willeka, 67 in Sunday school. Well, I'm Dwayne Davis, First Baptist Lone Grove, 165 in Sunday school. And, and it was all about your number that was tied to your name. It wasn't about money. It was about the number that was tied to your name because that number that was tied to your name led to uh, more buy-in. I, I sat through, when I was a youth pastor, I sat through meetings with youth pastors at round tables that if you didn't have 100 kids in your youth ministry, your opinion was not valued at all. Obviously, you don't know what you're doing because you don't have 100 kids. I have 100 kids. Listen to me. Nowadays, we see it. 
works through that. We see it through social media. How many people are following you? How many people are reading your blog? I got off social media, and I still am off Twitter. I can tell you that right now because that's what it was all about when it came to ministry in a lot of ways. It wasn't about the gospel. It wasn't about advancing the kingdom. I'm talking about my minister friends. It was about prestige. It was about building a platform by which people wanted you or admired you or give you applause. And listen, don't make no mistake, pastors and ministers are not the only ones guilty of wanting prestige in the church. There are people in the church that only serve because the applause they get from the people in the church. Let me tell you something, church. It's kind of invigorating. I'll be honest with you. It's invigorating when you know people love you and love what you do. It feels good to be appreciated. I'm just being honest. I, I, I enjoy when people come up and, and say they appreciate me or appreciate that message or God used that. And, 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 but I want you to know there's danger right there because it's not, it's not a far off path to go from being appreciated to coveting God's spotlight. See what I'm saying? Because it's never been about me. It's not supposed to be about you. It's about God. As a matter of fact, there was a, 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 an evangelist back in the early 1900s, and I can't remember his name, but he was preaching a very big revival in Chicago or New York. I can't remember which city. And when people, when he first sensed that this revival was really a movement of God and people were beginning to come in, now again, this is in the early 1900s. This is way before TV, news, social media, even newspapers weren't covering this. When people started showing up in groves, he started preaching the gospel behind the pulpit with a, with a box over his head. Why? Because he was adamant that people not give him the glory for, for something that only God could do. And the way he kept people from giving him glory was he stood behind the pulpit wearing a box and people that came in didn't even know who was preaching. But they heard the gospel and they heard God and they glorified God. Now I'm not saying we should all put boxes over our heads when we serve. But we need to be really careful not to desire prestige because prestige is a danger to the unity of the church because we're not aiming uh, for the good of the group or for the good of our God, we are serving for the applause we get and we're really just one on self-display. But the aim of the Christian is to exalt and glorify Christ for he is the only one to deserve it. And the third, uh, third cause of disunity in the church is not just selfish ambition and prestige, but it's simply just self-centeredness. It's just where I, I'm, I'm more, I'm all about me. I'm all about me. As long as I'm happy, as long as I'm served, as long as I'm blessed, as long as I'm uh, taken care of, as long as I'm comfortable, then I'm okay. But if you start messing with my comfortableness, or you start messing with my happiness, or you start messing with my whatever you want to fill in this, then I'm out. Or I take a stand and cause a a, a, a squabble or quarrel. And, and I want you to know self-centeredness, again, is a major, major hindrance to unity. When, when in sports, you, if you're a 
athlete, you'll hear this sometimes from time to time from coaches, but there's no I in team. There's not. I want you to know, church, there's no I in gospel either. None. The gospel's not about you or me, and it's not about us being comfortable. It's not about us being happy. It's about God being happy and God being glorified. And that only happens when we do what God dreams for us to do, and that is to come together and unite for the purpose of advancing the gospel. When we do that, he's glorified and he's happy. And that is what we should worry about. So is there a cure? Is there a cure for disunity? Yes, there is. But it's, it's difficult. Because the cure for disunity involves death. It involves death. Jesus Christ, I believe, seeks men and women who will set aside their own wills, their own personal preferences, their own secret agendas, and just be in total submission to him. In short, the cure is to be in total surrender to Christ, and that takes you being willing to die to yourself. I believe that Jesus is looking for a church that are going to take his word seriously when he says this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If any man desires to follow me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I believe that's what Jesus is looking for. I believe he's looking for a church, a group of people, that are going to just live in submission to him. Not submission to self, not in submission to others necessarily, in submission to him. And understand that when we submit to him, we will find ourselves submitting to other people. Why? Because at the cross, the only thing that matters is the cross. At the cross, the only thing that matters is salvation and forgiveness and grace and mercy. At the cross, there's no room for self-centeredness. Why? Because at the cross, you and I should come to face-to-face with the idea that we don't deserve what we have. At the cross. When we look at Jesus on the cross and see what he did for us, that ought to be our first sign of going, I don't deserve this. What in the world do I have to be ambitious about or the need for prestige for or self-centeredness? I don't deserve this. And it brings me to a point of humility. And when I'm in humility, I can exalt Christ and I can serve others and I can do it without being self-centered, without the need for prestige and without the need for selfish ambition. Listen, true unity is born when we submit under the cross to Christ because that leads us to living a life of submission to others as well. Now I want you to know as I close, disunity flourishes in any atmosphere where the human wills reign supreme, where we struggle and fight, where we bicker and argue, where we push and pull in order to make sure our will is done. That is where disunity flourishes. But let me remind you, church, not every fight is worth the victory. You know, it's been said that a bulldog can defeat a skunk any and every day. But that victory is very, very seldom 
worth it and pleasant. Yeah, I can go out and whip a skunk all day long, but the stink that I'm going to end up with, not very pleasant. Ask yourself that question the next time a battle of wills comes up in the church. Ask yourself the question when you're tempted to be uh, disunified or when you're tempted to to exalt self and, and be self-centered or ambitious or desiring prestige. Ask yourself this question. Is the victory that I'm about to achieve worth it? Is this just going to exalt me and my opinion and my desire, or is it going to honor and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? I want you to know if it's not going to honor the Lord, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Why? It's easy. Easiest thing I'll say all day. Why is it not worth it? Because people's eternity is at stake. It's not worth it. Had a gentleman, and I'll tell you this story and then I'll close. Had a gentleman. We were, when I was at Lone Grove, and we were really talking about some changes and just doing some things, trying to figure out a way to draw more people, to be able to impact more people, just, just, just having some brainstorming. And, and um, brought in this guy from the convention, a good friend of mine. His name is Chris Lowry. I had Chris Lowry come right after I came here and did that listening evangelism. Some of you may remember that. But um, Chris Lowry came, and we, and we were talking, and... And, uh, and I, I'll, I'll never forget a conversation that took place between this gentleman and, and Chris. And, and Chris was talking about these changes, and we live in a culture that's changing, and the church can change. It's okay to change without, as long as we don't change our message, and just kind of going into a general deal. And uh, he, the guy came up and said, as long as I'm a member of this church, we will not change what we do. That was his words. And I never will forget Chris looking right at him and say, do you have grandkids? He said, yeah, I do. He said, do they actively attend church? Or are they Christians? He went, uh, they come sometimes. He said, okay, bigger question. Are they Christians? And the guy said, I don't know. I don't know if they are or not. He said, um, would the changes be worth it if it meant them getting to heaven? First time that man had ever been stopped in his tracks the way he thought. And his answer, I have to give him credit, was this. Absolutely. The reason why disunity is bad and the reason why unity is important is because people's eternity is at stake. It's not about getting our way. never has been. It's always been about exalting Christ and advancing the gospel. And a church that is unified in that purpose is going to be a part of God's dream team.